And then as I started to do the research on entrepreneurs and on creatives, it really was just kind of uncanny how these sort of characters that were forming in my head mapped seamlessly onto these 10 dimensions of personality that are common in creators. And so those those 10 dimensions being openness to experience, intuition, achievement orientation, passion, disagreeability, optimism, charisma, desire to self-actualize, and really just these mapping onto those dimensions so perfectly, and they became just these really rich characters in my mind, and really from there the book wrote itself. Jessica Carson, creator and teacher and author of new book Wired This Way. She's also this week's guest on The Impossible Network. In the first 30 minutes of this episode, we cover Jessica's early life and her development of being the perfect combination of her right and left brain parents. Jessica refers to Jungian psychology as a reference point to her adolescent development and her innate passion and self-imposed pressures and character polarities and the impact that had on her friendships and relationships growing up. She discusses the transformational time in her early working life as a social director in a startup and discovering her social fluidity and her empath character. Jessica goes on to discuss the common characteristics of an empath, the value and downsides of being an empath and the need for self-protection. She explains how this led her to study neuroscience at Georgetown. Now, from around 30 minutes in, we get into Jessica's main area of focus, creativity. We discuss Jessica's experiences of serendipity, describing herself as a serendipiter, and how, by embracing the synchronicity of life, she overcame her disease, distress and angst. Jessica explains the different creative archetypes that she's mapped in her book Wireless Way, which discusses the light and dark sides of different creators, and then goes on to explain the ten shared dimensions of every creator. Jessica also discusses the dance between creativity and productivity, and the deficit of creativity in our hustle-based culture, and the need and value for creative self-discovery. Jessica makes historic references and provides an overview of her six muses that she uses as a framework and as a creative and customizable approach to the journey of self-discovery, a tapestry to understand what archetype a person is. We discuss happiness, creativity, self-discovery, procrastination and creative incubation and the creative rebirth in the context of the times we live. We also cover education, mental health, innovation and the importance of diversity in the innovation process and we end by discussing fear and failure. I hope you're stimulated by the creative explorations and archetypes of Jessica Carson. Jessica, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure and I have to give a big shout out to the marvellous Dr. Christian Bush for recommending that we interview you and it was great to discover about you and, and the life you've led and what I know so far and the, and the great book that you've just written called Wired This Way, which I'm sure we're going to come on and talk about. I sure hope so. <laughs> now, like a lot of our guests, it's quite hard to cast, sometimes categorise what people do because they often live very, very diverse, interesting, meandering journeys through life but I think it's fair to call you a a combination of a creator a teacher and an author but to frame how you got there you could maybe start by giving us a a bit of a background in terms of the parental impact and other influences on your journey 
from when you grew up and when you were born in Pennsylvania. Yeah, absolutely. So the pandemic brought me back to uh, my roots in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which some may know, some may not know, is known for its Amish population. So it's a really beautiful, lovely, peaceful, abundant place to have grown up. And so I spent a lot of my childhood, you know, barefooted, sunburnt shoulders, usually, uh, you know, playing outside uh, and and had a, I would say in some ways, a simple childhood, but really in a very beautiful way. And I was very lucky and am very lucky in that my parents, my parents didn't have this anxiety around me being a well-rounded child, like I feel <laughs> a lot of parents now do. And as a result, they really gave me a lot of space for exploration and creativity and play. And so I had very little structure in my schedule and my routine. And as a result, spent a lot of my childhood really kind of engrossed in a, in a play world of my own making. And I really do think that it was those early jousts at what it meant to kind of create your own little reality as a little creator that that inspired me as I got older, though I certainly veered pretty far away from that for, for a portion of my adult life. But I'm lucky in that, you know, my father is very much the archetypal left-brained individual. He is very practical, very logical, very assertive, very, you know, do-do-do, trains run on time. And my mother is archetypally right-brained. She's feminine and, and, and creative and spontaneous and adaptive and fluid. And so those combinations uh, together actually, um, you know, I, I like to think I got the best and potentially worst of both my parents, but with that, <laughs> you know, I always kind of struggle. Maybe don't, maybe cut that bit out of the podcast (laughs) (laughs) right well but look you know and and part of what we'll talk about is that many of those things that we deem as being so bad those things that uh, often have a genetic component are actually part of the reason for our strengths and and I have found that certainly to be true and so yeah I would say that I've been I've been blessed to to get both the right and the left brain from them but I would also say that as a child I was I I was sort of um liked by everybody but but felt like I belong nowhere I I don't I wouldn't say I was awkward necessarily but I was very introverted and I really just liked being alone I always no, sim- no sibling no siblings I did I had a I have a, a younger sister who's about a year younger and she is incredible and I aspire to be more like her every day but she is very much uh, growing up we were polar opposites in that she was funny and social and playful, um, you know, and I was very serious and intellectual and scholarly. And so uh, we kind of embodied that dyad in, in a sort of interesting way. That's interesting. Yeah. So although you're uh, a balance of your mother and father in the way you describe that, is her character a result of that balance as well, but in a different way? Yes. And I think that as we get older, we are uh, each adopting more of the other's, you know, personality characteristics. I think I'm oh, that's funny. embodying more of her tolerance for play and for humor, and she's embodying more of your seriousness, of my seriousness <laughs> and intensity and, and intellectualism and my, you know, d- desire to pick everything apart. But yeah, you know, it's interesting, and that's a, a, 
premise of Jungian psychology that oftentimes in close relationships, whether it's a romantic relationships or a sibling relationship, uh, uh, each individual in the dyad will attempt to really stand their ground by rooting firmly in their own suite of sort of unique characteristics. And so it's like, I pick this one, you pick this one. I pick, you know, uh, in a very sort of binary way, and that allows the individual to sort of stand firm in their strengths. But what it also does is sort of blocks them from adopting or adapting to many strengths that they might otherwise possess. Interesting. Did you ever read Sophie's World? No. It's a lovely story about a young girl as she's growing up. And I think it was a 1990s book all about how she immersed herself in the learnings of different great philosophers. And she was very uh-huh. influenced by Jung. Oh, my gosh. I'd say it sounds like a book that I would absolutely... I think with your background, I think you'd really, yeah. enjoy, I think you'd really enjoy it. You should look it out. I'll put it in the show notes. Sophie's World, it's called. Absolutely. Do you know the other thing that does when you started? I should have said there was a wasn't there a wonderful Harrison Ford film set in the Amish community, a thriller. Oh yes, what was it? Witness or something? Witness, like? that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So when you said that, I thought, oh yeah, Witness. Yeah, I know exactly where you're from. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so you've got the the perfect balance of your parents, the 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 transformative characteristics, the being Jungian. How do you say that? Jungian. <laughs> Everyone kind of says it a little bit differently, but yeah, yeah. yeah, it is fine. Yeah, transformation that's been happening as you've grown older. And you had this environment of play and freedom to explore, which a lot of people don't have. And particularly today, I think a lot of parents are overprotective of their parents and they worry about them. What were your parents' backgrounds and careers that led them to be so embracing of, let's say, what many parents would see as as risk and allowing their children to have that free reign to express themselves? It's, it's it's quite uncommon. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that both of my parents, well, when they met each other, they grew up on Long Island and they met each other when they were working at a diner. But they both shared this sort of common trait of being in some ways quite respected and buttoned up, but then in, in like in their essence, quite rebellious and, and quite... Um, you know, risk tolerant and and really wanting to enjoy all different kinds of experiences in life. And so I think that, um, you know, even as they got older and, and began to attend to some of the more practical matters in life, they still held on to this um, uh, uh, love of experience and just experiencing everything. And so I grew up in every single day, you know, so, uh, you know, we go off on different adventures and try different things and we could never sit still on the weekends. It was always like, get in the car and go somewhere, get in the car and experience something, have music on, have a movie on. There was always just like something stimulating you. And, and sometimes that's not good because sometimes, and as I've gotten older, I've learned that I really need to have those Sundays where you're not doing anything but as a child when that stimulation is is so important I found that sort of adventurous nature that my parents both had to be really intellectually exciting mm-hmm. what were their careers oh career so my father started out as an uh, engineer I uh, went to school for engineering, uh, worked uh, as an engineer in a flooring factory, and eventually worked his way up to a leadership position in what I, I believe is the world's largest flooring manufacturing and distributing company. So very, very successful, really kind of pulled himself up by his 
caps. My mother went to school for fashion design. And so, and when my sister and I came along, she, she, she gave up her career, but you know, she was, um, you know, very much had an eye for design and for and art. Creative um, mind. Yes, yeah, exactly. So. Understanding more about you and the work that you do. Clearly you're a very curious person. And it sounds like your your parents did cultivate your curiosity by giving you this free reign. Was there any point in your youth when you realised that you said you were studious and quite mm-hmm. serious, but do you ever have any recollection of looking at your friends and people around you and being aware of your innate curiosity? <laughs> Is that a nice way of saying being aware of how I was different? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. yeah. So that, I mean, that was something that always, I was always very acutely aware of. And really, I struggled with enormously, because unless it sounds like I'm, you know, bragging about my strengths as a child, this came actually with a lot of distress, because, again, I was so serious uh, that it verged on, um, uh, uh, you know, really being quite not grumpy, like angry, but just kind of like, you know, always looking for the flaws in everything and, and, you know, kind of uh, isolating myself from friends or um, uh, having wanting to always come across as being so smart. And so having a lot of insecurity around being perceived as anything but smart and always wanting to, you know, have the leadership position in school and the student council and the safety patrol and this and that and the other thing. And then all of the, you know, anxiety that arises whenever there's failure. My parents didn't put pressure on me. I put a tremendous amount of pressure on myself. And so um, my innate intensity, my innate achievement orientation, my innate capacity for passion started to work against me from quite an early age, but then also in many ways worked for me. So it was really this double-edged sword, Um, you know, and and talking to my mother to this day, you know, she, she talks about how she realized I was different and how she didn't want to pathologize that you know she was very she was very against the idea of taking me to a a doctor a psychologist (laughs) to you know try to fix me or improve me because she she was able to see those differences as being my strengths which is something that I wouldn't learn for a few decades (laughs) Mm -hmm. obviously you were conscious of this complexity of character that you had because you, because you talk about polarities, were you? Do you have any sense of your polarities at that point? You know, I do think I had a sense of it, but I did not view it as this like empowering, self-directed thing at that time. Yeah, you know, at that time, it was very much that I feel complicated, and that feels hard. Mm-hmm. I feel like I contain multitudes, and that feels overwhelming. I feel like I'm experiencing discrepant desires, thoughts, beliefs, and that feels stressful. And so it was very much not a, you know, it it did not feel blissful and harmonious. It it did create a good amount of of anxiety, you know, wanting to um, sort of be both logical and creative, wanting to be both you know, studious and then also carefree or whatever those dyads were did create a good deal of tension. But I do think that this tension is common of really any, uh, uh, what I heard in a TED talk described as being a multi-potentialite, uh, you know, <laughs> being someone with so many potentialities, um, you know, and, I, uh, so, and so many of us are, but then also the stress that comes from not really knowing 
what to do with that potential, not knowing where to channel it, not knowing where to put it, not knowing why you're not seeing it um, uh, reflected in people around you, not really understanding why there's not this fit for you anywhere like there is or seems to be for Mm -hmm. others. Wanting to, you know, I remember when I was little, wanting to just be happy at the things that made other people happy. I wish I could be happy just, you know, hanging out with friends. I wish I could be happy just, you know, having carefree weekends, whatever, whatever. Those things didn't make me me happy. And I always had this very kind of existential fidgeting that, that, that was at once um, acutely aware of my current state of being and acutely aware of my desired state of being and feeling this tremendous discrepancy between the two. And that is not, I'm not saying that that is a good way to operate. I'm saying that, you know, as a little old soul, that was the, that was a big stress for me was wanting a life of meaning and purpose. And yet, you know, being a a little, little tiny human and not even understanding where to start and always wanting to be an adult, always wanting to be older, always wanting to be a grown up. I never wanted to be a kid. How did that character affect your peer relationships and your friendship group and the impact and how did teachers relate to you well so um quite different answers to those questions so in terms of peers it was one of those things where you know uh, fortunately people throughout my life have wanted to be my friend unfortunately i've pushed a lot of people out because i think they wouldn't understand me or they won't get it or they'll reject me if they know who I really am. So there was a lot of self-sabotage that happened in terms of social relationships. But in terms of my relationships with teachers, um, you know, uh, would would really have one of two kinds of relationships. It was either the sort of relationship with teachers where we had this adoring relationship, very close, very much teacher's pet, or would get kind of the teacher who was triggered by my constant questions and asking and curiosity and wanting to, you know, get the A and, and, and then having some teachers sort of uh, poke at me for that tendency. The question that you've, I sort of feel you've answered it in a way is the, about abundance and scarcity that mm-hmm. I think it, people, the path people take and the, and the behaviors they manifest as they get older are often a reaction to the level of scarcity or abundance in their lives, whether it be material or emotional. How would you describe those words on different on those different dimensions of materialistic yeah. versus and also maybe emotional? So I would say that I definitely felt a scarcity in terms of acceptance, in terms mm-hmm. of being accepted. And this is no fault of my parents. This is I put myself in situations and had a lens on the world such that I felt that I would not be accepted the way that I was. I could not be accepted for all of my messiness and my complexity. So I would say that I kind of grew up thinking that, you know, rejection was the default or that, you know, um, uh, uh, friendships were hard to come by or whatever that was. So there was definitely a scarcity mindset in terms of social approval. But I'm very, very, very blessed in that when I was uh, a young child, um, I mean, my parents could barely afford diapers. But as, uh, you know, my father moved through his career, um, you know, my family was quite comfortable. And so for me, financial, financially, abundance was present. And so I never felt too obsessed with the idea of 
making money, which I feel very grateful to have not had that sort of pressure or influence. But for me, the pressure came less from making money and came more from not wanting to disappoint my potential. It's interesting that when the way you describe that scarcity of social acceptance or approval, that could manifest itself in a very negative set of behaviours. A lot of people would turn to anger, addiction, Mm -hmm. dietary issues, whatever, and it might, but you clearly have an abundance of character that got you through that transformational period of your life. Because I was going to just ask in terms of, do you recall when you started to come out of that that, tran- that let's call it a transformational period, when you started to feel less scarcity of acceptance and, and, and maybe strive for social approval? Yeah, so it actually wasn't until I had graduated college that I actually, so even throughout college, I still kept up with the old tricks. I graduated with a 4.0 and very few friends. That's a, that sounds a great sort of summary for a resume. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what was, yeah. take it or leave it. <laughs> yes. But what was amazing was this. When I graduated college, well, so for a few years I was working as a, as a research fellow at the National Institutes of Health because I wanted to have a big, impressive big girl job that was smart and, you know, would, would, you know, sort of respect my intellectual potential. But after I left that, I left to join a startup and it was a very social startup. And in fact, it was a startup where I was put in the center of DC's social landscape and kind of became a social director in a sense. And what was unbelievable was that because I was forced into these social situations where I previously just would have like turned the opportunities down, I realized people actually like me and people actually accept me and people actually, or at least they accept the version of myself that I'm presenting. But I realized that I had a strength all of this time that I had really been discrediting, which was actually that I was quite socially fluid and adaptable and quite socially intelligent. Um, and, and, you know, that social intelligence is largely born from what I started to identify as a very high emotional intelligence, but that very high emotional intelligence was counterintuitively part of the reason why I had isolated for most of my life. Because what I realized about myself is actually that I'm an empath. So I feel and take on the emotions of other people. And so what that meant for most of my life was that I would feel very confused as to why I would feel other people's stuff in social situations and and didn't really know how to harness that or leverage that or deploy that. And so as I got older and started to become more in tune with my empathic abilities and my and my sensitivities, I realized that I actually I could use that to my advantage because I could really kind of intuitively tune into how somebody was feeling and use that to make people feel comfortable or, or at least succeed in a social situation. So it was really this eye-opening experience where I went from having no social life to having the social life, but that also came with its tremendous tests and challenges. A question about empathy is, you know, yeah. where, does it, where does it come from? I mean, you studied, you studied neuroscience Maybe this is a good way to sort of pivot into that. I mean, you studied sort of neuroscience at Georgetown. Was that a conscious 
decision because of you being aware of your your character and your yeah. difference that you were intrigued by the mind and psychology and the and the and the science of the mind that led you there yeah so I first want to address the distinction between uh, empath and empathy ah, okay so that's a good one yeah set me straight yeah, no, it's a good because I mean, I I didn't really know what an empath was until relatively recently, and and when I did, it really just blew my life wide open because uh, I finally understood what to call myself. But empathy is something that can be cultivated; it can be nurtured and grown. And empathy has, um, you know, despite the fact that I I didn't always know where I fit socially, would say that I always had a you know a great deal of empathy and this actually manifested specifically toward animals growing up I just always had animals and always really felt very um, uh, comforted in, in their presence but being an empath takes empathy a step further where it's actually and there are a few psychiatrists who've done research on empaths specifically but empaths are sometimes called highly sensitive people and empaths have nervous systems that are very sensitive and very receptive and very perceptive. And so it goes beyond just being able to say, oh, I can, I can imagine what you're feeling mm-hmm. and actually being able to pick up what the other person's feeling. So you will feel it in your body. Sometimes you actually manifest it in your body. And so being an empath is a tremendous gift. It makes you very uh, intuitive. It makes you very aware of your world and your surroundings. But empaths also have to be careful because they can easily become depleted in social situations. They often don't like, and I have a whole chapter of this in my book, don't like situations that are too uh, loud, noisy, draining, depleting, maybe especially sensitive to sugar, stimulants, caffeine, alcohol, maybe um, uh, uh, sort of easily run down or prone to stress-related illness, may need a lot of rest to recharge. So these are some of the common characteristics of the empath. And so um, when harnessed properly, the empath can be tremendously socially adept, but they also have to learn how to protect themselves. So to, to answer your question about why I chose to study um, neuroscience at, at um, GW, was because I've always, you know, I I think we teach best what we most need to learn. And to me, human behavior and why we are the way we are has been the single consistent lens throughout my whole life through which, you know, every question has been asked and every pursuit has been, you know, has Mm -hmm. has been followed. And so, um, of course, I wanted to learn more about it because I was trying to understand more about myself. And, you know, it's just beautiful that in learning more about yourself, you can you can hopefully share that learning to help others. But, you know, uh, in the beginning, it was very much to figure out what the heck was going on inside of me. <laughs> it's funny, I when you, you described those characteristics, I know quite a few people that would fall into that yeah. category. It's yeah. Oh, I so, def- uh, definitely recognize it. Link in the show notes of the Empath Survival Guide by Dr. Ju- Judith Orloff. Uh-huh. So that book found me one day when I was kind of in the depths of my, like struggling with my own sensitivities. And I was going on a hike by myself and I walked through a neighborhood to get there. And the book was literally sitting on a sidewalk 
literally <laughs> and i read it cover to cover serendipity um, there you go i mean thank you universe yeah. talk about talk about synchronicity and serendipity perfect okay so were there any i mean i, I understand now why you know the the motivations and of uh, for doing for studying neuroscience were there any sort of key mentors or influencers throughout your life that were seminal or pivotal in terms of the direction you took whether it be at school or at university so my mentors i only really started letting in mentors after i had graduated I like that. so i like that term letting people in yeah you're like yeah, oh, stay yeah. Away. well i mean previously i was very i was very i think protective of you know m- myself and and what i left let in in a variety of senses and mm. that included mentorship and so i wish very much so that i had had a mentor earlier on but it was actually really only i had, after i had graduated college and started sort of being of the world and in the world that i started needing you know it's like uh, on joseph campbell's hero's journey you meet the mentor you meet those people who give you the tools who are going to help guide you on the rest of your journey and now i have a litany of mentors you know a whole big laundry list but um you know those came in in my adult life okay let's talk about everything so far that you've described sounds like it's been quite a planned rational logical path yeah, yeah. rather than one that's been open to embracing risk and going down the road that's less certain yeah which is sort of anachronistic or doesn't really lead to necessarily to serendipity particularly if you follow christian bush's book the serendipity mindset however i can't believe that you haven't found yourself where you are today without some form of serendipitous events occurring in your life Oh, gosh. Well, I would say actually, so in my earlier uh, life, I would say that I was not as open to going with the flow. But I would say that in my in my adult life, it has been characterized by actually in a belief to it's actually funny. Christian and I have have talked about this many times that perhaps I am almost too much of a serendipitor in that (laughs) I believe so much in the, you know, um, things happening for a reason. I believe so much in one of the ways that my, you know, powerful mind, powerful for better, for worse, you know, sort of goes off is is seeing patterns in everything. So I'll see patterns, I'll see things that repeat, things that, and, and as a result will design meaning therein. And oftentimes there is meaning and then sometimes there's not meaning and then you're kind of, you know, fussing over something that's not there. But I would say that my belief that nothing is an accident is an absolute core guiding principle of of my life. And it was only when I started truly understanding what that meant, that my life started to become truly creatively abundant, started to become truly beautiful. And, And actually, as soon as I really started to internalize this belief that nothing is an accident and that um, everything happens for a reason and that we are everything happens in its own perfect time and all of these things many of the things that I had struggled with whether that was mm-hmm. mental health or physical health or angst, existential angst or you know all these things really dissipated quite naturally because what I realized was that so so much of this distress and dis-ease was born from a desire to control 
you know, mm-hmm. and from an impatience and from uh, a, a wantingness to be perfect. And so really adopting the principles of serendipity and synchronicity have been in and of itself a curative experience for me. I think that, I mean, you were thrust into that situation or thrust. You were given this role, which seemed to be on the face of it, alien to everything you'd been about managing the social relationships of that startup. When you're in those situations, and I find myself there a lot um, uh, when I go out and network, I, I mean, particularly when you do a podcast about serendipity, you, I put myself out there. I speak to people I maybe wouldn't otherwise speak to because you think, well, you never know. Yeah. You never know what that sto- the story that person's got to, uh, to tell. You never know where that conversation is going to lead. So you're so if you take the concept of free will, you're, you're, you're making decisions consciously to speak to people, to engage in situations you maybe otherwise wouldn't have done mm-hmm. before. So you, you were put in a situation that transformed your behavior and forced you to be social yes. and to engage in conversation. Well, and it's oftentimes through our interactions with other people that we learn more about ourselves. And so all of a sudden, you know, was engaging in this wide variety of friendships and romantic relationships and professional relationships and all of these things that began to infuse me with incredible creativity and inspiration that had really gotten lost in between sort of my childhood and then uh, and then sort of you know, going through middle school and high school and college where I got a little bit more serious and intellectual and really started to tap back in and tune back into a lot of the wisdom that I had had all along that I kind of forgot about. And so really, for me, socializing, in a sense, became this technology of self. It became a mirror that reflected me back to myself mm-hmm. and allowed me to get re- reacquainted with this strength that I innately had um, that, that I wasn't really flexing. I wasn't really working into. And it's incredible. You know, once I, once I had that job, how my life sort of exploded in this multitude of synchronistic and serendipitous ways. And it certainly wasn't boring after that, but it also certainly wasn't easy after that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, my, that's my point. It becomes quite addictive. And if you chase every conversation and, and go down every rabbit hole, suddenly you you walk away with all these cards, connections on LinkedIn, uh-huh. and, and you're like, oh my goodness, I've got to follow up with all these people because you never know where these conversations are going to go. That is there a potential for, let's say, applying the law of diminishing returns to curiosity. Sure. Well, so... That, uh, that curiosity has to be well-managed and disciplined. Yeah. Yeah, so I would make the case, and this is one of the archetypes in my book, uh, you know, that we can we can talk about, but, but I call this the charming creator. So the charming creator is based on the dimension of charisma. And so what I was getting in touch with was my inner charming creator. And, and so this is characterized by somebody who is sociable, who is magnetic, who is compelling, who is convincing and persuasive and charming and good at being, you know, can sell water to a fish or whatever mm-hmm. that saying is. But the flip side of this is um, uh, uh, inauthenticity, being mm-hmm. disingenuous, manipulation, losing sort of your core sense of self, being too sort of permeable and and easily manipulated by others. And so what began to happen was I was met by this um, social success, but then bought far too heavily into it. So I became very consumed by this idea of um, 
you know, uh, being well networked, being well connected, being well liked, dating the right people, having mm -hmm. the right friends, showing up in the right photos. And this, this became very seductive and very detrimental because what really started out in this role as being a beautiful sort of explosion and blossoming of self then started to backfire um, back in on itself. And really, I, I would consider myself a great chameleon, I would say. And so I kind of blended into this version of myself that a certain class of people seemed to be really responding well to. But that wasn't really me. Yeah. And it wasn't really how I wanted to show up. And so this, uh, uh, you know... And it didn't end with that job. That extended into my work because I then went into venture capital where that actually propelled and, and actually got worse in a sense because, um, you know, now I was networking with founders. You know, yeah. yeah. And, and big um, egos, big egos. That's exactly it. And then started getting in touch with my empowered creator, which is all on the dimension of ego, <laughs> you know, and the, and the bright side of that being confidence and empowerment and all those sorts of things, the downside of that being, you know, arrogance. And so really went on this journey of meeting all of these different types of creators inside of myself, the light and the dark. You talk about the, the disparate, disparate modalities when you encounter, obviously you were in, it was almost like a incubator for discovering cr different creative modalities. When did you start thinking about this? When did you start recognizing it was in other people or was it in yourself that mm. started you along the way? Because the seeds of this book must have started some time ago of mm -hmm. thinking because it's a brilliant set of characterizations of creative people because i've had countless conversations with people across the um uh, the podcast with in different roles from people at a guy in columbia dr michael hansen on theories of creativity to creatives in the ad industry who are now doing other things and teaching and written books about creativity but i've never seen anyone describe in such precise terms the, the personality characteristics and traits of creative people and it's a brilliant mapping of that that I think is a, a wonderful not just for yourself and when you know I read it I could see the characteristics of myself and I think the the curious is it called the curious creator curious creator is based on openness to experience which I can certainly see you embodying <laughs> yeah and I'm going oh that's me yeah, yeah. I read a couple other ones oh no 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 I'm definitely not that and, <laughs> and I could see you've already described it as you you sometimes you move between different and different, different ones. Yeah. And that's and the thing that, you know, this isn't like the uh, sort of Enneagram or the, you know, um, Myers-Briggs where it's like you're one, mm -hmm. you know, the idea is you may have one that you are strongly, yeah. but that throughout your life and career, you may have one that is sort of more front and center than others. And then it will be replaced by another one. So it really is meeting all these characters on your hero's journey. But it's a great, but, it's a great playbook for I'd say for for teachers for parents for team leaders to use is that what you were setting out to do when you wrote it <laughs> well you know what I was setting out to do when I first when it first started coming to me was again really to <laughs> understand myself but you know what actually of all things like beyond outside of myself what really inspired this and I guess just by the way I'm 
self-soothing right now, I may still be insecure to say this, but actually came from dating a lot of creators. And what was happening was, you know, I just because of the people I was meeting and, and dating all of these wonderfully rich, dynamic, nuanced, light and dark creators and, and seeing these patterns in them. And, um, you know, obviously in the context of dating, you're getting to know somebody intimately and you're getting to understand, um, you know, all mm-hmm. of their strengths and their challenges. And so it really also became this curiosity of like, wow, it's like there are these 10 types of people that I keep running into. (laughs) And then as I started to do the research on entrepreneurs and on creatives, it really was just kind of uncanny how these sort of characters that were forming in my head mapped seamlessly onto these 10 dimensions of personality that are common in creators. And so those, those 10 dimensions being openness to experience, intuition, achievement orientation, passion, disagreeability, optimism, um, uh, charisma, desire to self-actualize. I'm not looking at a piece of paper right now. I'm thinking one of the other two. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. But so, um, and really just these mapping onto those dimension so perfectly and they became just these really rich characters in my mind and really from there the book wrote itself it's funny you mentioned myers briggs and i was talking to someone the other day about another personality model i think it's called is it ocean oc yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. we were joking i can't remember who it was but anyway as you were describing this and you you, you mentioned myers briggs and dating i think my goodness this you could build a dating app out of this to find oh, the right combinations of characteristics to ensure that there was good combinations so maybe that's further further down the road i jumped ahead a little bit there because i wanted to talk well maybe it didn't maybe it's relevant because you did a ted talk and we're living at a sort of a moment in history where we arguably have to embrace our creative selves and apply our creativity at a scale never before imagined you know we as a you know, we're all around us, leaving aside what's happening at the moment in politics, but with the potential existential threats to humanity, the, the the risks that AI will bring over the next couple of generations and other existential threats, we have to, uh, particularly climate, we have to apply our creativity, our superpower as a species, and not just as people who are, you're creative, you're not. Everyone is. Everyone has to tap into that. Yes. What you've done is important for it. So I'm wondering if if you could describe or, or reflect on how we can take what you've done to allow people to tap into their creative side mm-hmm. and, and make it manifest more in their lives. Because I think a lot of people live in denial of their creativity. Mm-hmm. And they just think, and I know when we first talked, you talked about productivity and creativity being different, like a tree. And yeah. I think it's something we as a society have to start to nurture more. And a great the great Ken Robinson talked about it in schools, educating it out of us. But I'd love your perspective from where you come from and having written this wonderful book. Yeah. Well, so so a few different things. But first to the point on, on creativity versus productivity, you know, what became so hyper aware, what I became so, so hyper aware of when I was working in startups and venture capital was that we 
we create in this ecosystem that is absolutely obsessed with productivity. And mm-hmm. I know that we all like to pretend like we're, you know, so into creativity hacks and everything. The truth is we are firmly rooted in productivity and have a productivity imbalance. We're, we're leaning too heavily into, into productivity. So it's all about efficiency and speed and scalability and competition and doing things faster and doing things better and getting things done yesterday. And it's this very masculine, archetypally masculine way of approaching creation. And don't get me wrong, productivity is not bad. Productivity is a necessary and equal complement of creativity, which is Mm -hmm. much more archetypally feminine. And so, you know, in an ideal create in an ideal ecosystem of creators and entrepreneurs, we have this nice balance and dance between productivity and creativity so that both are informing the other. But what we have currently in this sort of hustle culture, the hustle culture and the grind and the keep calm and carry on and all of this BS is that we have this deficit of intuitive creativity, of abundant creativity. And when I mean creativity, I don't just mean good ideas. I mean uh, work that is aligned with your purpose, with your identity, with how you're meant to serve, with what uh, feels yummy and good in terms of what you're creating and how you're creating it. I mean truly effortless in terms of your um Uh, ability to sort of be in flow and to generate these great insights and ahas and what you know it it seems like is happening just with this abundance of burnout and uh you know uh, stress-related illness and all these sorts of things is you know we're we're leaning into productivity so heavily we're burning ourselves out and then we're wondering why things don't feel fulfilling and things don't feel yummy and things don't feel existentially satisfying and it's because we're not sufficiently rooted in our creative and archetypally feminine nature mm-hmm. and so what this really comes back to is is going inward on a journey of creative self-discovery so really coming to know and understand ourselves from a creative perspective so that we may then go out into the world and create our great work. Because, you know, it's really it, what, what boggles my mind is when people, you know, they're far along on their professional journeys and they say, you know, well, personal growth or self-discovery is something I do, I'll do when I have time or when I have money. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's, it's it's so funny how it's completely the opposite, right? Self-discovery is the foundation of being able to go out into the world and be both creative and productive. You know, know thyself, know thy work. And so to me, it's really sort of flipping this conversation on its head where it's not, okay, I'll be mindful when I have the time. It's in order to be the most efficient and successful creator that I can be, I must first take the time to get to know myself. And then as we embark upon this journey of creating our life's work, we of course learn more about ourselves. So it's not like we have to be perfect before we begin. But these questions of really tapping back into our identity, our sense of purpose, uh, our sense of meaning, sort of these more higher order needs on Maslow's hierarchy Mm -hmm. can really then make the process of 
succeeding in a very practical, tangible financial sense, much more effortless. And so we've really just sort of inverted this order. And it's it's interesting to me how, you know, really, if you look at what an entrepreneur would have been 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, they wouldn't have been a tech entrepreneur. What they would have been is a craftsman or craftswoman. They would have been an artist. They would have been an artisan. Yeah. Artisan. Yes, exactly. And artisans, yes, they must be productive. They must produce things. They must, you know, paint paintings and build buildings and, and so on and so forth. But they must also have this sense of Um, you know, really being immersed in their work, identifying with their work, having this connection uh, and seamless blend between their work and their selves that is, um, uh, uh, I think, is something that we've lost. They have this degree of patience and creation being emergent versus us forcing our creation into a box and demanding that it do what we tell it to do. That's a very, I mean, it's the antithesis of being a craftsman or a craftswoman. And so really, you know, so, so much of this healing uh, will, will organically happen once we, we begin reapproaching the act of creation as a craft. Mm-hmm. Just because we're doing it through a scalable platform, which is technology, or some of us may be doing it through technology, doesn't mean we can disregard the patience and the impeccability and the intention that goes into creating. Otherwise, we're really doing a disservice and disrespecting what is our, our soul's work, which is to create, because it does inquire, require that impeccability. History's littered with tortured geniuses and souls. Yeah. They've struggled with their what you'd call their the polarities. And most people would recognise many famous names through history: great creatives, whether it be painters, artists, inventors, musicians, full of co- psychological contradictions and complexities. You did your TEDx talk, and you make the case that creative beings' inner complexities are the source um, of their potential, and that creation yes. needs to integrate their complexity to learn to create, as you, you were saying there, but create with their whole selves. Whether you want, when you've maybe it's just depiction in movies or in books about how it's it's a struggle. Mm. It's almost like to suppress that dark side. And what I love about your book is you do break out the the, the light and the dark. Yes. So. It, Am I right in saying that what you're saying is we should just embrace the dark side? So whether it be everything that may, that came with fame for someone like Amy Winehouse or you know, some of the great musicians that have lost their lives early because they couldn't, or Kurt Cobain because they struggle yeah. with maybe the dark side of their creativity. If it is about, as you're saying, you have to embrace it, how do creatives do that? Because at the moment, it's conventional wisdom is that, yeah, you're creative and you're going to struggle. And I think you've got a great... Um, uh, visualization of you show on the one side the light side the dark side and in the middle you have things like ADD depression bipolar and I know plenty of people like that and they're constantly trying to through remedies and medication bury that you're saying no don't bury it you're saying embrace it how so how should someone go about embracing that darker side yeah. So first, let me be uh, clear that I'm I'm not against in any way, nor do I have the right to say that um, you know people shouldn't uh, take prescription medication or seek out clinical treatment. I mean, these are things that can be tremendously helpful, and that doesn't necessarily psychedelics, ayahuasca, no, ayahuasca. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Maybe that's just maybe that's just the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah. I mean, I did 
there's a study that just came out a few days ago on tremendous effects of um, psychedelics for depression. I, I mean, just unbelievable effects. But what I'm instead encouraging is this. So much of where our distress stems from is from our resistance of what we are. It mm-hmm. stems from our resistance of what we're feeling. And, and so much of our struggle can be not cured, but in, in, a, in a powerful way healed through this, this reframe of really being able to understand the connection and the through line between light and dark. So for those who haven't seen my TEDx talk or, or read my book, you know, some examples of this related specifically to mental health, because there's examples of this related to really any kind of struggle, but let's just take mental health. So you take somebody who has depression and, you know, the dark side of this is obviously low mood and energy and those sorts of things, but depression also, uh, there's, there's a reason that depression has not been weeded out in our genetic history because it actually does confer adaptive advantages or can confer adaptive advantages onto the individual in the form of being able to slow down, withdraw themselves from the world, and really channel their focused thinking on solving a problem, ruminating on a problem of their choosing, like writing a book or coding an app. ADHD, obviously the downside of that is distraction and sort of this fitful, frenetic personality. Upside of that is tremendous curiosity and sociability and, you know, this do-do-do-do-do kind of energy that we see that's so common in the entrepreneur. Uh, you know, if we look at addiction, uh, you know, the, the, the dark side of this, obvious. Light side of this, someone who's wired for novelty seeking and sensation seeking and risk tolerance and all of these incredible things that are absolutely necessary for the creative and entrepreneurial individual. And so what I'm not doing is I'm not saying, okay, if you struggle with any of these things, you shouldn't address them. Mm-hmm. Or if you struggle with them, you shouldn't, you know, get them sort of treated in a sense. But what I am encouraging is for people to look closely at the parts of themselves that they're so quick to shame because therein lies the way, you know, that, that is, you know, there are so many incredible, and that's what I've come to understand about myself. So let's take what, you know, where we started this conversation around, you know, um, I am, and this is a dimension I cover in the book, intuitive, highly sensitive nervous system. Uh, uh, light side of that is, you know, great, perceptivity, receptivity, creativity, social intelligence, emotional intelligence. Downside of that is my nervous system is very easily overwhelmed. My nervous system often senses way too much. I, you know, easily take on the, 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 the feelings of other people. So that awareness doesn't necessarily change anything about my condition, mm-hmm. but that awareness allows me to be more gentle with myself, more compassionate with myself, more able to talk to myself as if I were talking to a child and saying, okay, you're feeling overwhelmed. It's not because you're broken. It's because you have a really unbelievably awesome nervous system that's like also one of your greatest gifts, right? So it's being able to reframe and 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 uh, really rewrite these conversations that we have with ourselves so that we're not constantly in a struggle with our current state of being. Okay. So 
you have, and I, I don't know if you developed this before your book or since your book, but you have these, what you call your six muses, uh, you talk about on your website, six core muses that, that you harness to enable the journey to creative self-discovery, what you're talking about. And I'm sure that, I'm assuming that part of that creative self-discovery is being able to recognize those polarities, that duality, that light and the dark. Could you talk and explain about what those six muses are and how they and how you apply them? Yes, absolutely. So the six muses, uh, as a, an overview, are psychology, philosophy, history, mythology, art, and nature. And the muses are a, a concept from uh, ancient Greece, and, and the idea was that there are these different muses who sort of whisper in our ears different wisdom uh, and, and knowledge in the form of, you know, whether it's art or music, what have you. And so, you know, my work and my journey has been inspired by so many disparate fields. And what I was beginning to feel sort of discontent with in the personal growth space was the idea of, on one hand, things being too cold and clinical. And then on the other hand, things feeling a little bit to woo. <laughs> and so what I wanted to create for myself was a framework that incorporated a lot of different creative modalities for self-understanding. So being able to look across different traditions and pull the threads on the different kinds of wisdom, extract the different kind of wisdom in each of those traditions. Mm-hmm. So from psychology, you know, uh, uh, incorporating both the um, sort of neuroscience pieces, but then also, you know, really there's an art to psychology. And Carl Jung was was a great example of this, you know, with the symbols and dreams and archetypes and that really sort of rich creative aspects of psychology. Then we have philosophy, which obviously, I mean, philosophy is a tale as old as time, but um, specifically became very interested in the work of the alchemists. So using the work of the alchemists as a framework to understand the journey of uh, self-discovery. Then looking at history. So history having a lot of, you know, obviously incredible precedent in both, you know, people, places and situations that we can learn from to guide our growth because what is most personal is most universal. We have mythology. So both mythologies that exist, uh, you know, in books and literature, but then also archetypal stories uh, that we tell ourselves, so our own personal mythologies, because really that is what we are all doing is creating our own personal mythologies. Art, so looking at uh, works of art and music and literature as things that, you know, we can kind of look into a mirror and they can teach us things about ourselves just by proxy of the way that we feel when we look at them, what sensations they draw out of us, what with what they provoke us to feel in our body, so on and so forth. And then nature being, you know, kind of the original muse, there are incredible parallels between the natural world and then the hero's journey of creation. So really honoring nature as, as the greatest teacher of creativity. So how do you... If you've got someone that um, you're working with, do you just expose them and explore with them these different muses to try and identify what the, to unlock their creative potential? or And what's the timeline on something like that? 
Yeah. So uh, actually, I am launching um, my first course that will be available publicly. And I know, so the six muses, it sounds like a lot and it sounds very disparate, but in the work, the intention is really to create a tapestry. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, you know, in in the course or the, the way in which that I work with clients is to bring them through a series of eight stages. And uh, the stages bring them through this process of understanding their light and dark, of understanding what archetypes they most closely identify with of creating their own archetypes. So creating these characters, creative characters in their own life, their unique embodiment of their light and dark qualities, of designing these archetypes. So who are they? What do they look like? What do they, what, what is the art that's associated with them or the smell that's associated with them or the song that's associated with them? Helping them connect, you know, draw these through lines between their light and their dark qualities and then helping them write this personal mythology. So it's not that this course brings them through each of these muses one by one, but that all of these muses are infused into every stage of the process. Mm -hmm. So essentially what my work is, is giving uh, the client, giving the individual uh, a, a brilliant suite of colorful tools, a really colorful palette of creative tools that they can use to learn more about themselves because what works for me will not work for everyone. And I disagree with any teacher or practice that says that it should, Um, you know, I could tell you to meditate for an hour a day, but if you're, you know, fidgety and hate sitting still, that's not going to work very well for you. And you're not wrong for not working for you. So let's give you other tools to work with. And that's really what this is about. It's about taking a creative approach to personal growth rather than a more cool and clinical and sort of one size fits all approach. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. You know, happiness that isn't necessarily a comfortable bedfellow with creativity, um, <laughs> let's say. But there was a great book I read about two or three years ago called Hacking the American Mind by Dr. Robert Lussig. And it's all about he's determining what leads to happiness. And it's uh, he tucked into, obviously, what Kristen Harris is talking about today about the damaging mental health effects of social technologies. But it is a great bit in it about him about creation and creativity is it makes us feel more fulfilled so how, how do we strike that balance by getting people when they are recognized they're 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 dark and they're light do you tap it at all into the science of happiness and people people like laurie sanchez talk about it yale and i think mo gaudet salt for happy his book covers that because there is a really interesting intersection and I, and I reference this as well with with Christian because I feel there's a sort of a, like and everyone has their different areas but there's a like a, in a Venn diagram there's a crossover point at which where happiness is probably at the center or satisfaction or gratification I don't know what we call it but to, you're because you're talking about so, you're, you're talking yes. about self-discovery and I maybe it's a bit of a rambling question but I'm just trying to feel my way sure this Sure, absolutely. No, it's a great question. So I would never want somebody to think that my work is about glorifying suffering or glorifying struggling or glorifying Mm -hmm. being unhappy because that's certainly not the case. But is instead, I believe in an ideal state, a creator is able to experience, you know, a dark emotion or a dark experience and, and to be able to sit with and appreciate the you know potential creative 
uh, uh, substance or fertility or inspiration that can be found in it. And, you know, really being able to harness and maximize the potentiality in darkness, not encouraging darkness. You know, we certainly don't want ourselves to struggle any more than we have to. But when it does come up to be uh, able to understand how to leverage that into Mm -hmm. our creative work, Um, you know, and certainly when we are creatively authentic, when we are expressing ourselves and our wholeness, it is quite hard to be, well, you know, I'd say it's quite hard to not be happy, but if you're not going to be happy, I would say at least to be fulfilled, Mm. you know, because when we are, we are designed to be creators. And so when we are, when there is a clear channel and we are able to express who we are and externalize that and manifest that in the world, that is the definition of self-actualization, I would make the case. And so um, it's not about avoiding the unhappiness, but it's about being able to recycle the darkness into creativity. The other thing I like to mull on is uh, procrastination mm. and, the, and the power and the pr- productive using the word productive but maybe we have, we have to call it creative procrastination is it often someone like uh, Darwin had his thinking path and you know the way you suddenly describe the darker side often there are moments when people used to say they maybe descend into moments of depression or what they have to deal with are times when it's there for a reason yeah. uh, and if people embrace it and see it as having it's all part of the the rich tapestry of create what creativity is and that something good will come out of it it's rather than resisting it it's embracing it and welcoming it and and living with it so let's look at this metaphor for a second mm-hmm. i mean we're heading into winter so summer is a maximally productive season. I mean, things grow in the summer almost at a disconcerting pace. And in winter, winter is the, it is it is depression, right? It is go within, retreat, darkness, coldness, and the appearance of nothing happening. But, and, and winter in that sense is ultimately feminine, mm-hmm. whereas summer is ultimately masculine. But there is incredible fertility to be found in this darkness. And I actually think that the quarantine that that the current pandemic has forced upon us is actually a really interesting example of sort of this forced procrastination because it's forced us to all procrastinate in some ways. We've been unable to go out in the world and to be as productive as we would have liked. But what's so interesting about periods of retreating and going within is that's where so much of the creative fertility is. And I actually, at the beginning of uh, quarantine, did a, a good bit of research on examples of this throughout history. Because what's very interesting is that periods of quarantine, sickness, isolation are almost always followed by a creative rebirth. You know, so you take the, 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 you know, Black Death, the bubonic plague that was shortly followed by the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. Um, uh, You know, a great many thinkers created their best work in times of quarantine and isolation. Now, those periods of darkness or winter or, you know, those aren't the best moments for necessarily sharing the work. But those are the periods for incubating the work. That is the time where the, you know, the seed yeah. is, is kind of in, in the womb um, before it emerges. So I'm actually quite bullish on the idea that 
following, you know, our reintroduction to the world after this pandemic, uh, you know, once we enter our, you know, sort of summer, so to speak, that we will actually emerge with tremendous insights that have been generated from this period of darkness. Because we've all been sitting and stewing on a lot, consciously and unconsciously. And what that will look like when we're actually able to execute out in the world again will be quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard quite a few people talk about how by 2024 we'll see an explosion of uh, uh, new experiences and new creativity and innovation. Are you talking to any educational in- institutions or organizations about with the work you're doing or even discussing it in relation to mental health because organizational mental health is certainly something that's going to become more of a a prime focus for organizations coming out of this pandemic absolutely yeah and and add to that the differentiator in organizations competitiveness isn't going to be their productivity as you say it's going to become their creativity yeah Yeah, so in terms of institutions, so actually I work um, quite closely with universities. So I'm an expert in residence at Georgetown University doing this work with their students. But actually universities are probably the most frequent group that I speak to because what better time to learn these practices then before you're out in the world and, you know, then the pressure is really on. So, you know, it's so beautiful to be able to catch these students early in their journey and their hero's journey. But in terms of organizations, yes, absolutely. And, you know, what I try to do in my work is to not focus too, too much on mental health, at least in the way that it's been conceptualized, you know, because those conversations can easily get a bit, you know, depressing or or people don't feel like because they haven't been diagnosed with a mental health issue then they feel like they can't relate whereas you know in reality our mental and emotional landscape very much exists on a spectrum and you know just because you don't have depression doesn't mean you don't you know you're not a creative or, or what have you so it's really just looking about or looking at dark and light more broadly than it is specifically at mental health because, you know, mental health issues are, are really kind of um, a result of, of these dark qualities getting a little too untamed. I'm going to talk about innovation and diversity. I've got a strong point of view that the combination of play and diversity are part of the alchemy of innovation. We're in, I'd say, a transformative time in society where businesses, organizations, communities are recognizing the need and the importance to accelerate diversity. Could you just reflect on that in relation to the work from your perspective around creativity? Because creativity runs through all of that. I mean, we want diversity because we want diversity of thought. We want diversity of people on that, those different modalities. Do you think it's, do you, so do you think, I'll ask you a direct question. Do you think it's something that we need to start to think that there's a, there might be a casting system approach to identifying the right types of modalities to bring together ones that play off each other in effective ways or do you think it's that's that that's not necessary that if you're bringing in diverse teams because arguably if we play this if i play out my own head you could have a diverse team but if they're all of the same creative modality is there going to be much diversity regardless they might come from different diverse cultures races religions but if they're all of the same creative modality then what are you getting (laughs) 
Yeah. So are you asking when you say creative modality, are you referring to like uh, their sort of archetype that they associate? Yeah, the different archetypes that you talk about, because you've got this lovely depiction and you can see if you put all one group in a room together, it wouldn't wouldn't be much progress. Sure, sure. Oh, well, absolutely. And it's fascinating to to reflect on how these archetypes complement and contrast and trigger each other. So, you know, to that end, I, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to think of a single example in, in a natural system in which diversity wasn't an asset. Uh-huh. I mean, and, and really, truly look at like a diversity in like a natural ecosystem. I think it's a beautiful parallel. So I would absolutely say, and it's cool because as I've worked with companies and, and they've adapted this language around these different archetypes, it gives them a shared vocabulary where, you know, I wouldn't say that it's so much one person is this and one person is that, but they're able to say, okay, well, I'm feeling like I'm, I'm in the darkness of my, you know, ambitious creator today, or this is, you know, that's that part of me is acting up, or I'm feeling, you know, like my the lightness of my, you know, charming creator is on fire today. And it gives them this shared way to talk about their feelings and their experiences without necessarily labeling themselves in sort of stigmatizing terms. And when the whole team is aware of what those archetypes mean, it's a very engaging and again, creative way to begin these conversations about, okay, I can understand what my colleague needs, what they're experiencing, why they may be reacting to me a certain way, why they were triggered over that situation. And it makes it all a bit more fun because why, why shouldn't it be? (laughs) Yeah. As you started to, encounter these different archetypes were you taking copious notes oh my apartment looked like an insane asylum so it (laughs) you know that meme where there's like the drawing of the guy who's like he has things on a bulletin board Mm. and there are like red lines and arrows going from one thing to another and his eyes are bugging out like that was me (laughs) and it was just you know it's so interesting because for me, in my experience, and this may not be everyone's experience, but I didn't choose to write the book. The book chose me. And I very much believe that we are sort of vessels for our creations and that they're gifted to us in a way. And so when it started coming through me, it came through me fast and furious. Mm -hmm. And it was waking me up in the middle of the night. And it was, you know, it, it, didn't want to come out in some moments and then it wanted to come out like a faucet in other moments. And it was this very chaotic and, and kind of frenetic experience of first starting to get this book out there. It just, in terms of my own ideation around it. And there were notes everywhere and books everywhere and highlights and this and that and the other thing. It was an absolute disaster. And what I would say is actually that when I first started writing the book, I really struggled not because I struggled with writing it, but because I was struggling with the chaoticness of the process. Mm-hmm. And it was really only once I, I, re, I, I, I equate it to the parallel of giving birth, where it's like, if you're giving birth and you're tensing your muscles and you're like, I want to control the way this is going to come out or this is going to happen, it's going to not either not going to happen or it's going to be very painful. And it was really only once I, Oh, you know, again, just started breathing into it and just let the process be 
the messy, chaotic, amazing process that it was going to be that it actually started flowing. Mm -hmm. And so what I would say to anyone is if you're looking to write a book and, and you're feeling completely discombobulated, I would say create space for that discombobulation because, and, and really breathe into it because if the ideas are coming to you and they're coming to you quickly and it feels organic, then the thread, the through line will emerge but you cannot force it to emerge. Mm -hmm. And the more you try to identify the through line before it's ready to be identified, the more you're going to trip over your own shoelaces. Because I did that. I wrote like four versions of the book before I ultimately settled on the final version because I was trying to nail what that thing that was going to be the consistent theme through the whole book was before it was ready to tell me. Mm And that's why I learned the hard way. <laughs> yeah, because I'm, I'm just looking at your uh, bibliography. I mean, the, the sources in there are just phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, the, it must have been really hard to create, because <laughs> there is a cle- there's a clear delineation between these different archetypes, which is so well observed. But It yeah. was a lot to organize. But it made it, you know what made it uh, doable was mm. that, it was fundamentally creative in that the creators, those archetypes were characters. They were, I could, I could close my eyes and I could feel them and I could smell them and I could sense their energy and I could put, you know, it's like there was just something about the characters that became so real that it became quite easy to sort of put these dressings on them once I had kind of understood who the characters were. You know, when you make it sort of palpable in that sense, it becomes, again, quite easy to sort of frame Mm. up the rest of it. Okay. Where do you want to be in four years with this? Where do you think it's going to go? Oh, (laughs) what a cool question. Well, so I would love to be teaching this. Mm. That's my, you know, writing books and teaching this. Yeah. And my the game that I always played when I was a little girl was teacher. And so it's amazing how we always know what we're, you know, meant to do, but you know, before the world tells us what we should do. But yes, I would love to be a lifelong teacher. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's great. But I definitely think the world can benefit from this. So, yeah, I really hope I really hope it happens. Before we get to the quick fire questions, you've probably touched on it a little bit, but I'm going to ask you directly about and I think you've probably you've gone through a journey from where you were as a, um, a maybe an introspective youth to where you are now as this playful, um, uh, ardently curious character. To, <laughs> what's your perspective on risk taking and particularly around dealing with fears and how you deal with failures? Oh. <laughs> It's, yeah, what a cool question. Good question. So fear, and this ties right back into your question about serendipity and synchronicity. Because I used to be quite paralyzed by many of my fears. And once I truly began to embody what synchronicity and serendipity means, Mm -hmm. it became much easier to step towards those fears. Because when you truly trust that 
everything happens for a reason and that, you know, we're, we're always right on time. It becomes easier to, to face your fears, to fail and to realize that failure is incredible lesson. Um, you know, every single failure that I've, I've gone through in my past and, and recently, and there have been plenty, the lessons become these heroes journeys onto themselves. And that makes the fear easier to deal with. If you're able to really, you know, milk the learnings from, from all of the, the challenges. And so, um, what I would say, you know, is, is my sort of approach to fear and risk tolerance is that I forget where I learned this saying, oh, you know what it was? It was my yoga teacher. Cause I had a fear of doing handstands. Cause I always feared that I was just going to tip right over. And she said, you know what, Jessica, you do it enough times and you fall enough times and then you learn that you don't die. And there was something about the way that she said it, and just this matter of fact, and you don't die. And of course, you're not going to die. You're doing a handstand. But it was the matter of factness that, yes, you get on the stage, and you might be nervous for the first few seconds, and then you learn you don't die. And you write a book, and you might not like the criticism when it comes, but you know what? You learn that you don't die. And the more you learn that you don't die, mm-hmm. the easier it becomes to do the hard things. <laughs> oh, that's a really good answer very grounding anything else you want to say before we get to the quick fire questions you know it's it's interesting i feel like usually in interviews we talk more about my i feel like i've talked a lot about my strengths and actually not a lot about my my you know i had some some pretty big challenges that i went through whether it was an eating disorder or losing my hair or depression or anxiety or all these sorts of things but you didn't you didn't you didn't die and i didn't die (laughs) and i'm still here exactly um but you know those experiences were really and it was when i was working in venture capital in particular that i had what i lovingly referred to as my dark night of the soul and so it was it was during that time that that was really sort of the demarcation between prior way of being and a new way of being and i only learned and really opened up to a new way of being because I didn't feel like I had any other choice. And, and my body wisdom was n- not letting me look away this time. So, Okay. Quick five questions then. Yes. What principles do you stand by? Oh, what principles do I stand by? I stand by, I don't know if this is a principle, But what is most personal is most universal. And it's a Carl Rogers quote, and it honestly guides everything that I do. Because every time we think we are so alone in the way we think, feel, believe, those are the moments that we are met by resonance from others. Say it again. What is most personal is most universal. I don't heard that. It's really good. Okay. What hard choices have you had to make along the way that might have been tough at the time, but turned out in retrospect, be the right decision? Being impeccable with my own truth, even when it disquiets and discomforts others, and specifically when it is met with criticism. 
Um, so, so really staying consistent in my truth and my essence and how I believe it is authentic for me to show up even when that's met with criticism because not everyone is going to like who I am, but that doesn't mean I have to change it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where'd you go to discover new ideas? Hmm. Everywhere. I I mean, it's really, it's an constantly, I think self-discovery and inspiration shouldn't be something we go somewhere to do, but something that's woven into every aspect, every second of our day. But I would say that, you know, for me, meditation is actually, it's not a matter of quieting down my mind. My meditations are actually extremely visual, extremely colorful, extremely insightful in terms of it's actually when my mind opens up. Okay. Aside from moving creativity people's understanding of creativity both personally and more at a societal level and the power of creativity what's one problem that you think is worth solving Hmm. why we have accepted the notion that we are anything but whole from the outset (laughs) well why yeah, why we why we just kind of blindly accept that as true when it's not. <laughs> That's a great answer. We have not had that one before. Okay, <laughs> uh, okay. you've got a um, rich tapestry of references to call on, but what four people from history would you invite to dinner to help you plan for a better future? Oh, gosh, I love it so much. I actually have all of those people in a picture beside my desk that I'm looking at right now. Wow. Um, <laughs> okay. And, and, and I have to make a confession. Very unfortunately, they are all old white men. But that doesn't, I mean, it's just these are the, the minds that have goes, inspired goes, me. Goes with the times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it would be William James. Of course. You mentioned, you, me- you mentioned him in your TED Talk. Oh, he is my, oh, gosh, I love him yeah. so much. Yes, William James, Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, and Carl Rogers. Oh, well, that's going to be some dinner party, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Uh, <laughs> one of the be a food fight at the end of it. <laughs> there would be something. I there don't, definitely I don't would be, yeah. <laughs> okay, what's the one question no one asks you that you wish they would? Hmm. I have so many answers. I'm just, <laughs> what makes you feel whole? I think in its simplest sense, what makes you feel whole? Okay. We don't get to ask you what makes you feel whole because it's that's for someone else that hears this podcast and then goes, oh, that's a question we need to ask her. <laughs> uh, who's made you reevaluate yourself? You know, I wouldn't say it's one person. I would say it's a series of people that I've met who have had the courage to reflect my darkness back to me. So it's very, it's very difficult to be honest with your friends, to be honest with your family members, to be honest with a romantic partner when it comes to critiquing or criticizing a dark aspect. And so I'm very grateful for those friends in particular who have had the courage to tell me when I was not in alignment with myself. Good to have friends like that. Impossible question. 
what would your advice be to someone that's about to graduate or is going to study that's got a dream, a goal, a big ambition, and they're being told, mm, 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 it's impossible? <laughs> oh, gosh, there are so many like stereotypical answers to give to this, but um, I would say don't focus on being well-rounded just because that sounds nice. I would say focus on developing mastery in two to three areas of your choosing and then create a tapestry that no one has ever seen before. And if you do that, you will make the impossible possible. That's a lovely answer. That's really, (laughs) that's really, really good. Thank you. I appreciate that one. Finish with these questions. A bit of fun. What's your go-to karaoke song? Well... (laughs) When, let's say, there's karaoke bars that are welcoming people right. back in. <laughs> I don't know if I have a favorite, but my two most recent ones were Tiny Dancer by Elton John and Shake It Off by Taylor Swift. <laughs> Tiny Dancer is going on the Impossible Network Spotify playlist for guests, um, uh, <laughs> karaoke songs. Uh, a recent film, book, uh, sorry, recent film or series or documentary you've seen on one of the streaming shows that you think people should watch? Yeah, so I loved Freud on Netflix. So Freud is loosely based on Sigmund Freud's life, but is actually very dark and moody and poetic, and I loved it. I also really like The Queen's Gambit. Uh, so, yeah, That's good. I haven't seen Freud. We'll put that on the list. Yeah. Uh, besides your book, uh, we like to offer guests. I uh, guess we like to offer listeners that come up with a good comment in the comments section on Instagram or on the website. Um, uh, a book. What book would you recommend that we give them? Oh gosh. Okay. So I would. Well, I mean, actually, I would refer them to Serendipity Mindset. But since Christian's already come on, I would say Scott Perry Kaufman. Have you ever had him on? Nope. Oh, he's awesome. So he has a new book and he has a series of books, but it's called Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization. Ooh, that sounds good. Okay, we'll add that. And final question is, who should we interview next? Scott Barry Kaufman. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well... Just like I said, I, I said to Christian, we'll we'll be following up with you for an introduction. Once your episode's live, we then say to you, "Can you make an introduction to the love person?" Love it. So would love that. to introduce you to him. He's the best. That's cool. Okay. Well, I just want to wrap up and thank you and acknowledge you for opening my eyes to the difference between empath and empathy, and mm-hmm. now having a name to relate to a lot of the people that I know that are empaths. I think I have to sort of acknowledge you for what I think you're doing is to you to take the, the late, great Clayton Christensen's disruptive innovation term. I think you're actually disrupting creativity. I think it's really uh, long overdue for someone to come along and think about creative characteristics in the way that you've done it and i think this disruption is going to have significant impact on businesses and individuals so i acknowledge you for that and as part of that i think what you've done is also you've tapped into ancient wisdom with a curiosity that has been applied and i think there's difference between just having a wisdom tapping into that wisdom to understand it but then to apply it in a really interesting way the way you've done it with your six muses is really interesting and i think those combinations are creating a really interesting space 
for people to explore aspects of themselves they otherwise haven't. And I loved the, this isn't really acknowledgement, I just love the term you used, always right on time. <laughs> we are I, always right on time. Because we've used the quote someone said before, which is life happens for us, not to us. But yes. often there's a time element to it as well. And I think I've been written a couple of pieces on time and did a little self-reflection podcast on it. But there is something I've always thought that there's a time for everything. And I think you really captured it there with the way you described that. And just finally, I congratulate you for your magnum opus. Um, oh, thank you. So, oh, yeah. Please. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, really, I strongly recommend everyone should get a copy of Wired This Way and read it. I look forward to when it is on audiobooks and not just on Kindle. And No, <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you should definitely record it yourself. Yes. So, but yeah, so Jessica, thank you very much. I really appreciate thank the time. Thank you so much for and having me. Amazing. Thank you. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.